Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. So much of what I've learned about using what's inside of me to make the world a better place comes from my father, who is often brave and willing to be clumsy in his efforts to transform the world. So my parents met as house parents at a residential treatment facility for neglected children. Mom responsible for the girls and dad responsible for the boys. Part of dad's marriage proposal to my mother included his plans for education, career, family, a life of meaning and service, and as a first-generation immigrant and the first generation of his family to attend college, this path, he said, was what he would be doing with his life. Would she join him? Turns out my mother, also the child of an immigrant, also had plans, a calling, in fact. As a teenager, she had met a nurse who worked as a missionary in Africa, and this nurse was single, traveled the world, took care of people, and in the eyes of a teenager, was fabulous. (laughs) So she wanted to be just like this missionary, and also, have a good marriage and happy children. She wanted to take a chance on becoming more than the world told her that she could be. Well, um, spoiler alert. (laughs) But the then 22-year-old young man who had become my father and one of my fiercest advocates had turned to the then 23-year-old young woman who would become my mother and one of the most powerful women I know. And he said yes. If that's what she wanted to do with her life, well, then he wouldn't get in the way. She should feel free to be liberated. (laughs) Have a career and a marriage and children. Go ahead, do that. So it wasn't so much that he would help carry the suitcases on this journey, but that he wouldn't interfere with her buying her own ticket. Now, when I checked out this proposal story with dad, he said, Now, first, having this conversation with your mother was less of a marriage proposal and more of a contract negotiation. (laughs) And her position was clear. It was, here's the deal, buddy, take it or leave it. (laughs) And he said at 22, he didn't really think her liberation would impact him very much. (laughs) Or impact her ability to get dinner on the table or to make sure that the children were educated and cared for, that it wasn't really about him, he thought. (laughs) Now, to be fair, it was 1963. This was the perspective of a fairly woke man. Just one generation before, his own father had counted his wife's need to clean houses in order to support the family as evidence of his failure as a husband and a man. So just one generation later, Things had already changed, and dad encouraging his wife to pursue her own goals, mostly 
because he thought, well, who was he to get in her way, was very reasonable. He recalls a dinner party at that time where a friend asked him with all sincerity, so what do you think of women's liberation? To which dad replied, well, everyone should be liberated. Everyone should be liberated. Feel free. Who are we to stand in the way? As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, simple, but not easy. <laughs> that spirit of fierceness and determination, that non-negotiable commitment to a world that we can envision for ourselves, and the reality of what it will take to bring those visions to life is resonating a lot with me these days. The climate change activists are telling us we will and we must be free from fossil fuels. It's non-negotiable. The movement for black lives is not waiting to be liberated from institutionalized violence, but is actively claiming the same life and liberty guaranteed to everyone. There's simply no other choice. Queer and trans youth have become visible and vocal in recent years with a boldness and a bravery that is breathtaking. Everyone should be liberated. Feel free. Who are we to get in the way? As I've watched the community within these walls mobilize for these and for many other imperative, non-negotiable calls for freedom, I have been inspired. I've wanted to join you all in doing more than staying out of the way. One way I've attempted to be useful in the movement for black lives is to ensure that people of color are among the candidates for the positions that I can fill at work. I recruit excellent candidates of color the same way I would recruit any other candidate through friends of friends and colleagues of colleagues because I'm most comfortable hiring someone who has already worked for someone I know. So these friends of friends and colleagues of colleagues are almost exclusively white. So my largely unsuccessful searches for excellent candidates of color are in largely white communities. Because that, frankly, is where I have been most comfortable looking. Hmm. Inspired or not, it turns out that my position is a lot like dad's at 22. People of color should feel free to have equal opportunity, to have equal access to hiring, feel free unless I'm the one responsible for creating that access, even on a small, personal, local scale, unless that access requires me to be uncomfortable. So while I'm willing to say, who am I to stand in the way, I'm becoming aware that doing what I've always, always done is actually standing right in the way. Reverend Joseph Cherry tells us, if we have any hope of transforming ourselves and the world, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, and loving enough to forgive ourselves and others. So I wondered how this 22-year-old who said, feel free to be liberated, it's not really about me, how he evolved into the advocate and the accomplice I know him to be. Were there mental shifts toward a broader vision and a broader consciousness? aha revelations and awakenings? How did he get from there to here, and what breadcrumbs did he leave along the way? 
Fast forward three years. He's 25 years old. His wife is in labor with their first child at the same hospital where she works as a nurse. At a time when men were smoking cigars in the waiting room, his wife's relationship with the hospital staff makes it possible for him to be among the first fathers to be present in the delivery room. Because this child is as much his as hers. Bold, brave, loving, simple. By today's standards, almost obvious, but not easy. Fast forward another five years. It's 1968, and some white families, a woman working out of the home in any capacity is a choice. It's a, a conversation, a strategy. Working out of the home considered, in some ways, the epitome of feminism. While women of color were then and have always been in the workplace, race dictating itself, uh, race itself dictating whether work is liberation or obligation. So he's 28 years old, he's married, he has a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and he has started a graduate program. So the family lives in university-owned housing specifically for students with children. It's an apartment block with 12 families, and there are 18 children under six in this apartment block. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the women are home with the children during the day, and then they are out at night where they are leading guerrilla theater groups against the Vietnam War. They're taking classes on their own, or in my mother's case, they're working the overnight shift at the hospital to keep her nursing skills up to date so she can continue her career once the kids start school. So while most of the fathers are also away in the evening, who's taking care of the kids? There are a few who can study at home. Dad is among them. So each night, after the children go to bed, the families leave the doors to their apartments open to the center stairwell. Dad and the other men who can study at home take turns studying in the stairwell, responding throughout the night to children's calls for water or bathroom or mama, to diaper changes and night terrors. And there's one woman who lives in this apartment block who is a recent widow and when she is at evening classes, her young son often cries at night for his dad. As mom said, your dad spent a lot of time with that kid. That kind of support was probably the only way she was going to be able to get her degree because none of us could afford sitters. She certainly couldn't afford a sitter. And I like to imagine that it was helpful to her son to be around those good men at that time. So while mom tells this story as an example of dad's partnership and her commitment to her calling, she says, I don't think your dad saw this as feminism or supporting women's rights. It just needed to be done. I wanted to work. Most of the women worked, and someone had to watch the children. He could study at home, so he did. It was just that simple. So I asked dad if he sat in the hallway as part of his commitment to his marriage and to his wife, and he said, yeah. it wasn't like that. <laughs> I never thought of sitting in the hallway as any kind of accommodation. If I sat in the hallway, 
so would someone else, male, female, who cares? We, we never had to hire a sitter for any of those families. Everyone in the hallway benefited. It wasn't about a movement. It was more like, this is what we do to support everyone's freedom and to make sure that the kids are taken care of. It's what was needed to be done. From everyone should be liberated, feel free, to this is what we do to support everyone's freedom. It is what was needed to be done. So dad at 22 had the values that told him everyone should be liberated, but hadn't yet recognized that his efforts were needed to make that difference in the world. So he found along the way that if he actually believed that women had some right to determine their own lives, that that belief would actually require him to play a role. And between 22 and 28, he learned that that difference between having his values and living his values felt just fine. It was even normal. Hmm. I attended an anti-racism workshop earlier this year held by Black Lives Matter Cambridge. And when the leader was asked how white allies could support the work, she said, come early to set up, stay late to tear down, make copies for handouts, order some food for a training, have it delivered, bring some food over, watch the kids during a training, or help pay for sitters, donate. You don't need to do the work. We need you to support what is. South African president and freedom fighter Nelson Mandela said, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Fast forward another four years. There is no girls soccer program in the small town where we live. So dad fights my way onto the local boys team where I am the only girl. And the coaches played me every single game because that whole shock and awe factor of a girl with a soccer ball meant that as soon as I got the ball, I could pretty much go straight down to the goal. <laughs> it's not that I was any good. So dad then went to the local school board to advocate for a girls soccer program at the high school level, five years before I would be eligible because he said, he wanted me to have the same opportunities as my brother. And with the help of some fierce female allies on that school board, that program passed, and it still exists today. From everyone should be liberated, feel free, to this is what we do to support everyone's freedom, to advocacy and building allies so that I have the same opportunities as my brother. Five years. Five years before I went to high school, he's creating these opportunities for me. What if I started searching for excellent candidates of color even five months before I needed them? There was a woman in a position of power who helped dad to get the girls program through the school board, so what if um, rather than starting in white communities, I searched for candidates of color in powerful communities of color? I was beginning to find the breadcrumbs. Maybe 
supporting these urgent, non-negotiable calls for freedom isn't actually about reading Facebook posts until we have some great aha moment of awakening and then suddenly we know how to engage. Maybe that isn't how it works. Maybe we start by listening for what is needed. That we're needed to support what is. We're needed to be present in the delivery room. Needed to sit in a stairwell. Needed to set up and tear down and take care of the kids. Sometimes bold, sometimes brave. Always loving. And sometimes what's needed is really basic. Food, childcare, presence. And sometimes much more complicated like advocacy five years in advance. So another breadcrumb seems to be that you find out what's needed, you find out how to be of use by being in relationship, uh, especially with people who are already doing what needs to be done, who call on you to do what they know you can do. And these relationships are the ones that often change us from being bystanders hanging out in the metaphorical waiting room, waiting for the world we envision to be delivered, to actually being at the bedside in the delivery room. In February of this year, Black Lives Matter Boston core activist Carlene Griffith-Seku stood right here in this pulpit and said, joining in solidarity with the liberation of other people isn't an act of charity. It isn't that you're serving those people over there who need you. It is first a self-liberatory and an evolutionary project, especially for white people. The ways to do that are to join forces with those of us who have no other choice. If we are to live and to exist, it means that we will and we must resist. In closing, a brief Postscript, like the missionary nurse who showed her her calling, mom's last position before she retired was to help design and teach the first ever bachelor's in nursing degree in the Caribbean, a program that still grows leaders among women of color from five countries, women of color who went on to be heads of hospital, directors of in intensive care, women who continued to create opportunities for other women. Like that missionary that inspired her, she spent years traveling the world and taking care of people. She was, and is, fabulous. <laughs> and dad not only encouraged her to buy that ticket, he helped carry the suitcases. Blessed be and amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.